are you? I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you're okay? I don't, this is, I'm good. It's Amon said, Amon just said, wow. That's all he get is a wow. <laughs> Amon, since you're doing that, do you like the black glasses better or the orange glasses better, Amon? Wait, I wonder because which one's going to say. Orange is always a good choice. Yeah, I probably should stick with the orange. Okay, who is here? <laughs> a character in a movie. Say which one, because I yeah, have. Yeah, it was interesting to see what movie. Uh, who was here last year? When who can re remind me what Jason and I were last year? It's really hard to top that, actually, Jason. Oh, last year's? Yeah. Yeah, last year's was amazing. I, I, I bet <laughs> we'll see if anyone remembers. This is episode one thirty, by the way. So, wow, someone just sent me a text that said the wig is too much, dying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to wear the wig the whole time, guys. Come on. Oh, Dorothy's here. This is the way that Dorothy's always dreamt to see me. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Dorothy from Brussels, who's like, what the heck did I just join? Oh, my gosh. Pink hair instead of black. Yes. I love it. So last year, you guys, for those of you that don't remember, um, <laughs> Dorothy, hmm. Yeah, Steve, that wig. Um, last year, what was it? What, I was Karnak, right? From the yeah, Johnny Carson show. People tell us all the time we're like, you know, Johnny Carson and Ed, Ed McMahon or pick some other talk show duo. We've gotten that reference more than once. So we were Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, but not any Johnny Carson. You were Karnak the Magnificent, one of yes, Johnny exactly. Carson's greatest bits. <laughs> yes, it was. And Dorothy says pink is not my color, which is, well, yeah, we won't <laughs> talk about that. So um, before we bring on our guest, we have, let's we can keep these on for like a few minutes. A okay, bit. and then yeah, yeah I'm not going to wear this the whole time. I can't look at Steve Goldberg, who's our steam guest with this on. Like right. I can't do it. But um, oh, Leo's <laughs> going back to therapy on Monday. Thanks to us. Perfect. Uh, wow, look at this, 2,692. Awesome. Um, very, very cool. So welcome. Happy Friday, episode number 130. Um, as you can tell, it's kind of Halloween here in the U.S. Uh, just coming up this week. Um, and uh, this is our little Halloween uh, celebration. Oh, look, you guys. I wonder if everyone knows what this is. Like, oh, yeah. I wonder if this is like a, uh, I wonder if this is like a global thing or if this is just a U.S. centric thing. Aman, Dorothy, like curious to know if you guys know what this is, but uh, amongst others who are from and outside. And do you like it? Like maybe we should red, yellow, green candy corn. <laughs> well, hold on. Let's do a poll. I'm just going to do a quick poll. Candy corn. Yes, Leah. I told the story about how that's all I fed you when you came to visit a couple of years ago. And I don't think I fed you a single piece of nutritional value except candy corn and peanuts. <laughs> okay, go in the polls. Go in the polls. You'll see a poll there. Uh, you can go ahead and vote. Candy corn, yes or no? You like it or you don't like it? Look at these real, oh, I love real-time analytics. Like this nice. is my data. Is it, is it weird if I say data is sexy when I'm wearing a pink wig? <laughs> no, it's actually quite appropriate. 
Uh, wow, look at this. Uh, we have, wow, it's it's leaning towards no. Look at that. What's your answer? Oh yeah, I didn't vote. I'm well, you know, I don't eat sugar really, so I would. I mean, I actually don't mind the taste of it, but I'm not really a sugar person, so mine would be no too. I think no yeah. is going to win based on some of those numbers. Yeah. Uh, no, we cannot vote on wearing a wig a month. So for those of you that are new, let's jump into this because people are like, what the heck did we just do? For those of you that are new, welcome. Um, Jason Averbrook and Jess Von Bank. Uh, we do this thing every Friday called the Digital Meetup. This is episode number 130. We've been doing it ever since the day that COVID became a thing here in the US. Um, and I realized that, that you say, what does that mean? And everyone's going to argue about it. It was March of 2020. And really what we started this for was to build connection in a community. And we, the first call we had 20 people, the next call we had like 22 people, the next call we had 23 people, the next call we got uh, Zoom bombed, which yes. is why we switched over to Crowdcast. Um, you know, and now we're at 2,700 people, which is amazing. You know, and over 600,000 people have listened to the podcast of what we do every week, which is just, um, it's so um, humbling, I guess is the best word mm -hmm. to say. Um, but it's really designed to be a community where we can share and learn all together around what this new now of work is that we're creating together. And at the same time, build connection with people, not just get people connected, but build connection when it comes to some of the emotional side of what we all deal with every single day as a human at work. Okay. Once again, the same human outside of work as inside of work. So all that said, we always start. Oh, Dorothy was on that Zoom bombing. Yes, it was. It January. was. It is a PTSD after. Like we were texting each other twelve hours later, asking if we were like, "Are you okay?" Like we were so shook. Yeah, you guys. For those of you that weren't on, that was uh, there was a lot of bad stuff that all of a sudden popped up on the screen. Um, yeah. Anyway, enough of that. The uh, um, but what we do always start with is we start with what we say is the most important question in humanity, which is a simple question, which is how are you? How are you? And the answers are only three, and everyone breaks the rules. But green, yellow, red. Green, I feel great today. I feel really, really good. Yellow, so-so. Um, red, not a great week or not a great day. Um, and that doesn't mean you want to talk about it to us. But once again, if you want to talk, have people to talk to, put your LinkedIn in the chat, um, whatever, and let's make sure that we talk about things um, as a group. We've got some green, we've got optimistic green, we've got M&M green, we've got, oh, we've got lots of greens today. Look at those greens. We've got yellowy green, green. Very good, awesome. Yellow, Sharon, where are you? We should, Sharon's, Sharon's local. Like we should have Sharon in the office here with us. No. Um, yeah, I don't I wonder if I have Sharon's favorite drink around. I don't. Um, otherwise, we can have Sharon over. Uh, green, green, yellow. So hopefully for those of you that are yellow, just seeing this wig makes you turn greener. I know it's not going to do it alone. But hopefully just the start of this makes you feel greener. Um, once again, the goal of what we try to do is we try to bring people together and, and, and build that community. Jess, how's your week been? Um, you know, one thing that you learned, one thing that you found interesting, one thing that you want to share with the community. Mm. Well, first I was home all week. 
for the first time in like a month, um, which was really important. <laughs> I just needed to sit still for a second and have routine. And I like I'm go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Uh, you know, it's all, you know, this week was critically important to be um, to just have routine, to be boring. Honestly, um, it was a good week. It was good work week, um, good with the kids. Uh, but it's been a month. It's been a month. <laughs> and so uh, my sole focus, I would have turned anything down, honestly. And I know you gave me that option for Paris and some other things we had going on in the last few weeks. Um, what I needed this week was to say no to everything that didn't serve, <laughs> you know, sort of my ability to just kind of sit still for a second. Um, so it was good. I did. And I was in the gym a lot, which is like church to me. <laughs> um, that's where I just, you know, I quiet my mind a little bit. And um, for those of you who don't know what the heck I'm talking about, it's, you know, I had some recent loss and um, kind of trauma, not kind of trauma to process. Uh, and you really have to create space for that. You have to be as intentional about that kind of self-care, the ugly part of self-care, as you are about brushing your teeth. Um, you have to be um, intentional about it. And I was, and um, I feel a tiny bit lighter, tiny bit. I don't feel light. I don't know when I'll feel light again, but I feel a little bit lighter than I did before, which is progress. So Jess, I'm, like, I'm really light now. With Yeah, you know, I can't talk about what I'm going to talk about with that, <laughs> with that stuff on. So um yeah enough of that but so i you know just thank you for sharing and i'm glad that your week was better and i'm hopefully that's still you know that still is uh felt really really good um yeah. sharon said glad to hear you took some time um you know been keeping you in prayer so i mean that's why we're together as a community um you know i had a really good week also and i think the reason that i had a great week is i mean i, I think you guys have seen the economy is crazy up and down up and down up and down some of you saw uh, elon musk tweet last night that the bird has been freed because now elon musk owns twitter you know we saw meta stock drop 30 percent you know but the thing that i think is really really important about what i saw this week in working with our customers and vendors this week is that transformation in 2023 is going to be bigger than it has been in the past hmm. and what I learned this week is that transformation is not just, hey, let's rip out our core HR system and put in a new system. Transformation might be small. It might be just putting in place a check-in capability with my employees. It might be teaching my managers how to be more human. It might be recruiting in a place I've never recruited before. Transformation doesn't have to be this massive thing. Okay. Transformation means change. Digital transformation means change towards the concept of being digital, but it doesn't mean a three or four or five or 10 year thing. Okay. So Jess, when I, Jess, Jessica, sorry, I've got too many Jesses in my life, as some people know. Never um, enough. Yeah. Never enough Jesses. Uh, transformation, tech transformation, you know, transformation is the category, Jessica, technology is the one of the ways to transform. Okay. So in some cases it regards, it requires tech, but in a lot of cases it requires behavioral transformation. 
and I've just heard more organizations this week saying, guys, we really, really believe that it's our year this year and next year to change behaviors. It's our opportunity to craft work the way we want work to be going forward. Maybe switch tech, maybe buy tech, but for the most part, really think about it differently. And I just love that. I mean, that made me feel great as someone who watches the economy and watches the world kind of move through this evolution of work every single day. Yeah, I love JCK. I love that quote. Um, Ryan Reynolds says serious things like this. <laughs> change. <laughs> change at the speed of culture. It's a great quote. So, you know, for me, transformation could be anything. Transformation could be putting on this wig, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. Transformation could be just changing a little thing. Transformation could be opening a mindset. We did. A, I did a great presentation uh, to a group in Germany this week on opening a mindset uh, within their HRIS function, getting them to get rid of the name HRIS for good. That's a transformation. So transformation's not going away. The world continues to transform, therefore we do. And that's one of the big takeaways for me this week. You know, I'm, I'm writing, writing some new content, shaping some new content on workforce optimization in recessionary times. And it's really funny to me as I write this content that this should have been content. This is content for the best of times, not necessarily for the worst of times or for, you know, cautionary times. The fact that we wait to do big, important, transformative, innovative stuff when there's a pandemic or when there's the hint of a recession, um, we should be sharpening our pencil always. We should be optimizing talent always. Um, but if it takes an impetus, if it takes a, a moment, an event uh, to speed you forward a little bit, then use it. Please use it um, and use it for good. But but like this mindset stuff we talk about should be mindset always. Completely agree. So that gets us to our guest, which I'm so, so excited about. And before we get to our guest, I actually put another poll in. And if we go to the poll, the question is, did you ever use PeopleSoft? <laughs> did you ever use PeopleSoft? Now, it's totally cool. I didn't say I've never heard of it as one of the answers. It's totally cool if you say never heard of it. Just you just say no in that regard. But did you ever use PeopleSoft? Uh, and I love these results coming in. Um, and it ties so much into <laughs> Megan said, use it now. Oh, my God, I just snorted. Still? I'm Megan, I'm so sorry. I didn't <laughs> I didn't word the question the way I should have. Uh, yes, have you ever used PeopleSoft? Not, not did you ever use PeopleSoft? So go into the poll section. Wow, look, Jess, we're at 77%. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I 25% no. So our guest today, as we bring him on, uh, <laughs> Stacy's still using it also. Um, our guest today is uh, one of the guys that is really influential in building out PeopleSoft and has always been a mentor to me and has always been someone that I've looked up to, Steve Goldberg. So How are you, Steve? I'm doing fine. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, really. Uh, it's like a 20-year PeopleSoft reunion with Jason and uh, very touched by uh, your, very, your very nice comment before. And 
I will say, uh, Jess, um, uh, Jason did share with me uh, the trauma that you alluded to, and you and I could talk some other time, but I had the exact same one, I mean, exact same one many years ago. You know, Steve, I just, a friend just called me about an hour ago to check in, uh, half personal, half work check in, uh, and said this, made the same comment. The more you say this out loud, the more people say, holy shit, me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's unfortunate. I, that, that, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but maybe we yeah. should all say things out loud a little bit more too, is my takeaway. So I'm sorry that that has touched you as well. And Thank you so much. Yeah, I will. Um, uh, this might be off topic, maybe not, but I will say that one of the because it was a long time ago it was it was literally uh, 30 years ago. But one of the things that really helped me through was the CHRO that I reported to and his son, because his mm-hmm. son is fairly famous and probably some folks uh, I'm sure some folks have heard the name. His name is Eric Weinmayer. Eric Weinmayer was the first totally blind person to climb Mount Everest. And mm. over the last 25 years, he's climbed, you know, pretty much the highest mountains in, in every continent. He's taken other blind folks. Uh, he's, he's amazing. He's been on the cover of Time Magazine. He was wow. 17 when I worked for his dad. Wow. And he was not, he was going blind, but he maintained his position on the wrestling team that he was on in high school. And his father was such a great guy, the guy that Ed Weinmayer, who passed away this this year. Ed was CHRO with three different large companies, uh, two investment banks and a pharmaceutical company. So anyway, I reported to him twice. But Eric, when you would think you're transitioning and you're losing your sight, that you would leave your position on the wrestling team. Mm. But Ed was such a dynamic guy and his offspring were just like him. And Eric stayed on the wrestling team. They changed the rules around wrestling, uh, which allowed him to compete and win. And after that, he went on to be the first sightless person to climb Mount Everest. So why am I mentioning this? Because his first book, Eric Weinmayer's, it's the last name is spelled W-E-I-N-H-W-E-I-H-E-N-M-A-Y-E-R. Eric wrote a book and the title of the book was The Adversity Advantage Mm. and The Adversity Advantage are two words that have stayed with me since then. I think it helped me back then and it's and it's really helped me uh, on and off uh, throughout my whole life. And I think it's two words that people should take to heart because we've all been there. Absolutely. She heard him speak. I just put a link in the uh, chat also to the book on Amazon if you guys are interested in it. I re- actually have read that book and it's a yeah, it's a great book. Thanks for sharing that, Steve. So sure. Steve, you saw my poll I started with about, uh, did you ever use PeopleSoft? And it was 76%. And then of course you saw some of the people saying still, um, I'd love for you just really quickly to talk about your past. You know, you've been involved in some of the biggest HR transformations in the world, as well as running the biggest HR product in the world, you know, at, at PeopleSoft. Um, so I'd love to kind of just, how did you get to that spot? Like, where, did your parents raise you to be a <laughs> transformation person? Um, and and like, sure. like, so what are some of the takeaways from doing that work? Wow, thank you. Um, 
No, they didn't raise me. They just raised me to, to work hard. Both of them had two jobs, grew up in Brooklyn. I was a vendor at Shea Stadium. I won't go any further in terms of my checkered past. But I, uh, uh, from an academic point of view, I, I was heavily into psychology. I was the president of the Psych Society uh, at a school in Manhattan, and then went for a master's in social work, and then went for an MBA in HR. So it was like the convergence of psychology and business and HR. And at the time that I went for an MBA in HR, there were only four schools in the country that offered that. And I came out and uh, I met Ed Weinmeier. And I wound up working for him two years later, the person I was just speaking about before. He was the head of HR at a brokerage house, Kid a Peabody. And he basically uh, laid out a vision for me that I bought into hook, line, and sinker in a positive sense. And it was to really um, leverage technology, innovative technology, and people data to really uh, be able to elevate the experience for employees. Yes, we were talking about employee experience early on in my career. And uh, so he was way ahead of his time and he uh, influenced me to be ahead of my time in, in, in some respects. And, uh, and so we had this very, very transformational project that went off for three years at Kid Peabody, the brokerage house. Uh, and it was a project to take everything in HR that we were doing out of house, outsourcing and bring it all in house. And in fact, we were the first uh, HR department, specifically payroll department to build a data center within the payroll function back yeah. then. It was really an HR payroll data center. And it was just fantastic. And then Ed asked me to uh, to do a repeat performance, uh, me and my team. And we did the same thing at Solomon Brothers. So I did that for Ed twice. And then, as you know, Jason, uh, I, w uh, I then went off to Switzerland, worked with uh, your former colleague, Heidi Spierge, and we did something very similar in Zurich. So I was... Uh, an expat, my wife and kids and I moved to Zurich for four years, and we did something very similar on a global scale, really leveraging uh, innovative technology and people data. Yes, we would use an enterprise software uh, platform as the base, but we would always amplify and, uh, and augment with, with some cool tools that uh, we were lucky enough to partner with IT organizations to get. Um, so that was really the first 15 years of my career. And you mentioned PeopleSoft. So I had an exploratory conversation with somebody at PeopleSoft and they said, you know, we've had three heads of uh, product strategy, but none of them had spent, were steeped in the practitioner's side. So they talked to me about that and hired me, uh, to be, um, the global head of product strategy and the spokesperson for PeopleSoft 20 years ago. Um, and you and I worked together back then from that. Uh, my kind of personal brand, you know, when you're on the inside as a practitioner, you know, your personal brand is kind of uh, confined to the organization uh, uh, at best. Uh, but, you know, once I became a spokesperson for PeopleSoft, I, that was the kind of the beginnings of developing my personal brand, as it were. And um, I was asked to then restart an ATS company called Personic after I left PeopleSoft. And really for the last 15 years, uh, I've been an analyst working with Josh Burson and others. Uh, last four years I've been Tanner Research before uh, going back on my own, which is where I'll stay because I'm too old to uh, be an employee. <laughs> so, so PeopleSoft put out two of the most global 
influential HR technology experts on the planet, PeopleSoft. That's very kind of you. Two of you, right? Is that more than uh, more than two of us? Well, there's many more. more they they have proliferated across the industry. <laughs> there are many, and uh, nice. maybe that's maybe that's the biggest impact that PeopleSoft had. Uh, we'll yeah, see. I mean, we can look yeah. back. I mean, it's it's great comment, Steve. I mean, I you know I would have never met Heidi Spiergy if it wasn't for Steve bringing Steve to uh, or bringing Heidi to PeopleSoft. But if we take a look at people leading product lines today, you know, whether it be you know Amy Wilson and Meg Bear who worked with you know Steve and I, whether it be uh, Gretchen Alarcon and Melanie Luzet at ServiceNow, like we can go down, we can go down the list. Um, you know, it, the people that are you know, amazing people leading vendors product strategy today, you know, got their kind of tutelage from Steve leading product strategy at PeopleSoft. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a long line, which has been, you know, we all learned a lot. And, you know, I think Steve said it really, really well, bringing the practitioner side of it to PeopleSoft was really, really important because we were a vendor making software and Steve, you know, kind of brought some reality to it saying, that's not going to work. You know, <laughs> we're like, what? Yes. what? What do you mean that's, that's not going right. to work? You know, and he's that's like, right. uh, that's, you know, you may think you're going to do uh, global process standardization, but that's not going to work. Um, and that was probably one of the biggest things that I learned from in Steve's time was like, whoa, like, what do you mean it's not going to work? And unless you're actually in it, you don't know that. Um, yeah. But, you know, Steve had been there and done that. I don't know if you want to add anything, Steve, but. Well, thanks. Um... You know, I made a comment on social media, uh, which really harkens uh, back to the PeopleSoft days. Uh, people that worked with me back then, folks like Yvette Cameron and Tracy Martin and Hanif Ismail and many others across the industry, they know that my vision pitch, because that was like a quarter of my job, was going into the customer visitor center and giving the vision pitch. And like slide one from the pitch, I talked about three or four themes that I thought would be increasingly important. Keep in mind, this is 20 years ago. And two of them were line manager enablement because my catchphrase was line managers are the stewards of human capital management. I must have said it a thousand times. I really believed it based on the practitioner years. Look, uh, HR departments are only 1% of an organization, right? 1% of an organization is HR, very important function. But 99% is outside of HR and and uh, and technology uh, for human capital management and for elevating processes and experiences needs to really think about uh, expansively about all the stakeholders that are being impacted and the results that want to be achieved. And the fact that um, while HR and the vendor community thinks a lot about processes and their kind of orientation is process, we want to deploy innovative technology to bring uh, processes to where they should be. In my experience, employees and line managers are not thinking within the confines of processes, just like customers don't think about that. And, and that's a whole other conversation. Uh, that it took us far too many years as an industry to start focusing on uh, the employee experience because customer experience has been focused on for 20 years. Why it took so long, right. I think it's because HR departments and vendors generally have been organized around processes. I'm not, yeah, I mean, it's just a reality. Anyway, we, talk all, we yeah. talk all the time about stop calling the modules. No employee cares about your exactly. freaking module. Exactly. You know, like yes. they care about the journey. 
Um, Jess yes. and I had an opportunity to be in Las Vegas while we were in Paris and then, you know, but we were also in Las Vegas at Oracle Cloud. Like I'd love to, uh, Cloud World, excuse me. I'd love to, I mean, Jess, I know that um, you probably, some of you maybe on LinkedIn saw the note that Jess and I put out about Cloud World um, just yesterday or the day before. But I'd love to get your sense, Steve, as to, and it goes back to one of you, to one of your posts, which by the way, you know, there's that connect with Steve Goldberg on LinkedIn. Steve puts out some great content. You know, that concept of, we've been talking about this stuff for a long time. Like mm -hmm. what, ha, what change have you seen? And, you know, for our listeners who are basically people that are in the process of trying to decide where to go next, like what tips do you have? Because, you know, everyone's talking about AI and everyone's talking about experience and everyone's talking about blah, blah, you know, marketing stuff. But, you know, for the person who's in your seat back when you were, you know, trying to decide what to do from a transformation standpoint, you know, what advice do you have to kind of get through the muck of the architecture out there? Hmm. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, really this is a long, I, I really have a lot to say on this and we don't have uh, that much time, but, but uh, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, and I kind of already um, started saying this. If you can avoid thinking mostly through the process lens, then then do that. Think instead, and this is cliche, uh, forgive me, but think about desired outcomes, strategic value, what's going to move the needle, uh, what are the operational dependencies that unless they are accounted for, the technology, you're just not going to get the return on investment. Um, uh, let me... Uh, this will take me two minutes. I think it'll be a kind of a, a two minute story, but I think folks will uh, relate to it. And it's yeah, partly my answer to your question. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I did um, move the family and myself to Switzerland many years ago, um, my, the CHRO I reported to uh, on my second day told me to go to Basel, Switzerland and meet with one of the GMs of the bank. Uh, now, keep in mind, uh, they brought me there as an expat. For those of you that don't know, particularly back then, the cost of an expat was maybe 2.3 to 2.5 times what a local would cost. Plus, they're putting the kids in school and you get housing, et cetera. Uh, anyways, so I go to see this uh, GM, and <laughs> it was Switzerland. It was years ago. He takes out a shot of cognac. It was about 10 a.m. We each did a shot of cognac. And then he and then he's, uh, takes out a napkin and a pen and starts drawing boxes on a napkin. He called me Herr Goldberg. And uh, after he had some boxes on the napkin, he then looked at me straight in the eye and pulled up his chair and went, Herr Goldberg, if at the end of your four years here in Zurich, you or your team can finally tell us with confidence how many people are in each of these boxes, your stay will be successful. Wow. Just headcount reporting and getting that right yeah. was going to cost justify my family and I being there for four years, which is astonishing. And if you fast forward to today, I guarantee you, if we have HR folks on the line, some of them are still dealing with that issue, headcount yeah. reporting. Uh, and HR, forget about seat at the table, you know, it's uh, we heard that expression much too much. If HR is going to get the broader mandate to really deliver strategic value in a whole variety of ways, you got to get the basics right. And one of the basics is people data. People data, headcount, cost, skills, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, 
universe of people data. Now, what we did, and Heidi was also a part of this, uh, I, I, it's one of the things that makes me proudest about, about my career. We got that investment bank to start trusting people data. And uh, I'll write about it someday, but uh, clearly there are operational dependencies. And before you start investing in AI, ML, voice activation, uh, everything else, think about the operational dependencies and account for them and get feedback that they are under control and then then get into strategic value territory. So that's one thing I want to I want to leave with everybody. Um, and then, you know, we could talk about what the employee experience means and how how much further we have to go. We could talk about that as well. I love that. And, <clears throat> no, I love that. And the fact that that's still a, a conundrum. I love what you said earlier. Two words, data center. Does every HR or people function need a data center? Like, what does it take to solve this problem? Accurate headcount reporting. That is, I don't know. I don't know how people do anything without accurate data, yet we do all the time. We wake up every single day and we roll out a new program or we design something new or we and we have no idea who's affected, who's going to use it and how, how we're going to measure the, the value of that. Is it productivity? What like what's what's even the measure of success we want out of this? We do stuff all the time yeah. without knowing why and for who and for what good. You just mentioned a couple of keywords to me, value. It can be, uh, of course, used in many different contexts. But if you're related to, I'll, I'll get back to your data center question. Well, I'll answer it right now. Data center, no. Everybody does not need a data center. Uh, certainly infrastructures and uh, costs have come down uh, to be able to uh, rely on, on the cloud and on your vendor, software vendor partner for data center-like functions. But, uh, but I think clearly... The, um, you know, employee service delivery, I think that HR has to play a big role in that. And part of the role is change management in so many different manifestations of change management, only one of which is getting the organization enterprise-wide and everybody in it to be responsible for data quality. Until you get everybody in the organization to say, I'm signing up. Data quality is important to me. People data quality, because our business is fueled by the accuracy of people data quality. We got everybody at Swiss Bank and in a couple of my other uh, employers to do that. But you have to get it's a multifaceted program and initiative where change management attitudes like most change management initiatives, but also, uh, um, uh, you know, service delivery metrics. Uh, we actually had something fairly innovative back then. We used something called the challenge feature and it was on every uh, screen, then web page, where if a manager or an employee sees data and it's not right, they press the challenge button. It brings up a, a, a free-form conversation box, dialogue box, and they say, this person no longer works here. This person transferred, salary is wrong. And that initiated a workflow and we had a 24-hour uh, you know, service delivery metric where uh, the person that was initiating the challenge, we'd get back to them and the person owning that particular data would have 24 hours to solve it. It was just, I'm telling you, it's the only time the GM of the bank ever came in uh, to my area and said, 
everybody finally has confidence in people data. There's so much you could do once you have that confidence. Wow, that's yeah. a great, I mean, that's a, I mean, think about that little innovation. I mean, I call, I'm gonna call that an innovation to get your data right, but that little innovation to make sure that data quality was everyone's job, you know, that's huge. It is, um, it is. It I is. love that story. Thank you, um, thank you. The, uh, you know, when you look at today, so, you know, one of the things Leo put in his comment over here is mm -hmm. people may be there physically, but not in their spirit. Um, you know, and we're starting to see a lot of tools that brought a smile to your face, Jess. Um, it, it, we're starting to see a lot of tools to measure things like employee sentiment, uh, employee listening, uh, you know, how are people doing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, to me, you use the word change management, the change behavior. And once again, that's a tool for managers and leaders. It shouldn't be a tool for HR necessarily. But I'd love your thoughts on some of the, I mean, all of these tools. I mean, I I, I say we're like, we've got too many mood rings on all of a sudden. We're <laughs> ever, an app for this, an app to measure this mood, an app to, me, sorry, I just gave you, used the wrong finger, an app to measure this mood, et cetera, et cetera. Like how many moods are we going to measure? And do we peop, do we have the right training of our managers to actually do something with those moods? And before you answer that, Steve, I smiled because as I read Leo's comment, I wanted to ask you, Steve, when you were one of the first to start talking from the seat of a technology provider, one of the first to start talking about employee experience, true or false? Was it woo-woo when you started talking about employee experience? How have we made this a woo-woo topic? How did that happen? Did it start that way? Did we make it that way? Because now that we can put it in dollars and cents, it's not woo-woo at all. It's actually fiscal responsibility to help people yeah. thrive at work. But what, like, what happened Steve, to this concept? Steve, before you answer that, I just have to say, what is woo-woo? Because I don't understand. I don't. I don't understand what you're talking I about. I took a guess what it was. I took a guess. Yeah. Uh, yes. How did you make it this fluffy? You know, crystals and energy and like, how did we make it this this weird concept when it's actually like helping people thrive? Yeah, I'm going to use woo woo from now on. Well, it's very technical. I'm going to Google it. It was clearly for eons an imbalance of power, if you will, uh, within organizations. The organization had tons more power than the employee. Uh, and, you know, many years of research around, well, what's causing major transformations, uh, corporate restructurings, mergers and acquisitions, what's causing so many of them, a high percentage? I, I mean, I did research and change management probably from the 80s through the early 2000s, 70% of all large scale change management initiatives underperformed or outright failed. And that includes mergers and acquisitions and, and, and the like. Um, and um, just, I, I don't know if it's serendipity, but the COVID era for all the negatives, and there's certainly many negatives associated with it, the one sea change, sea change that in a very positive sense is that the imbalance of power has been addressed to a great extent. And, so, and it varies by organization, but in forward thinking organizations, there's much more attention and an effort to balance the needs, interests, and goals of the employee and the organization. And, and we know this. And I do believe the COVID era, so to speak, was, was, was a big impetus for this. Why? Um, because 
you have employees, you know, fearing for their health, uh, really uh, preoccupied with uh, uncertainty about their job and their career and their loved ones and who's at risk and and uh, and the organization is going through work model changes and everything else. And um, and I think it was 2017 when Jacob Morgan came out with his book on the employee experience it was a bestseller. The same exact year was my first published piece on the employee experience. I put out a framework and it really starts my framework. I'll just won't get into it, but I'll just, the, the, the first pillar of that framework, which which I hold near and dear is the recognition that that every employee has an intrinsic need um, to do meaningful work, feel valued, and be productive. Mm -hmm. And when organizations start to have that mindset, they realize they're getting better results. Start with that foundation. Every employee has that need to do meaningful work, feel valued, and be productive. And by the way, feeling valued, HR systems can play a role. How? Um, because part of big part of feeling valued is recognizing all the sources of value that an employee can deliver, even the ones that are outside the confines of their role. They might be mentoring or coaching or suggesting operational improvement ideas or funneling sales leads, whatever it might be. Employees need to be recognized for the totality of their value, and then they'll start feeling valued, and then they'll be not just assets, but super assets. That's my view. Yeah, so is it, is it counterintuitive to say that HR, the people function then, by that definition, is responsible for unlocking human potential, helping people thrive? But, but uh, also, I, uh, is it counterintuitive to say that's my role and mission, that's the people function, but I must do so in a way that increases their output and productivity uh, in support of the business and client status and customer satisfaction. Like yeah. that's the juxtaposition that we see so often. We ask CHROs to think like CFOs and act like, think like technologists and understand data and all, but, but yet that's the woo woo part. But yet my job as a people leader is to unlock human potential and to help meet the whole hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are, yes. Are, are those counterintuitive or, or they, they come together, right? Please tell me. Well, you use two different descriptions or phrases. Well, you said HR and then you said people leader. Let's, not mix, up the, let's not mix up the two. Yeah. Uh, people leaders are those line managers that we need to enable. And they're at various stages of their own careers. And some of them have strengths in terms of people management and others don't. Uh, so I think HR's role is to lay out the blueprint for how uh, employees and line, management, line managers and external stakeholders uh, then have to kind of execute that blueprint. Um, yeah, because HR doesn't have the bandwidth to be everywhere at the same time. That's 1% of the organization. Um, so I, I, I wanna come back if I can, because I, I, I forgot to mention something that I think is, um, a good illustration of a point I was trying to make and, and just kind of hit me. Uh, in terms of the employee experience, one of the sea changes other than the mindset sea change that, hey, we got to balance the needs of both. Uh, another mindset uh, or, or sea change, and I believe was 
moments that matter, not just for the organization, because we're going through a transformation, but moments that matter for the employee. And when they both converge, that has a lot of other uh, aspects uh, to it. But when I was talking about the kind of the overly process centric view, to me, the best example of how this is changing for the better is the, is the whole area of onboarding, right? When we were onboarded uh, and many of the people in the audience were onboarded, what was the focus? Fill out the forms online or manually so you can get on payroll and benefits and et cetera. Boy, what a narrow, weak view of onboarding that is. Onboarding should be about immersion, immersion in your team and the job and the culture, et cetera. And that's where technology can play a huge role. And I think more people are receptive to this idea. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I love Amon's yeah. comment. It doesn't yeah. take data alone. It takes change work. Uh, we yeah. haven't talked about change. All this massive transformation stuff. When does change happen? Yeah. Well, so I, I, <clears throat> I actually dabbled in change from an entrepreneurial standpoint too. Um, some years back, and Wayne Huizenga, the late Wayne Huizenga, who a lot of people associate with sports, but he actually owned 500 companies. I, I was one of his change management guys down in South Florida some years back, right before people saw it. Um, and so I read a lot about change management and took some courses. And, and to me, the one kind of nugget that has stayed with me is the notion of the front end of change management is assessing organizational readiness for change. And the back end of change management is maintaining, sustaining the change, which often gets shortchanged. But Boston Consulting Group had a great kind of framework for assessing organizational readiness and was the ready, willing, and able model. I give them credit for it. And ready was basically, do you understand why we're doing this as an employee? Willing was, uh, do you support the change? Because you can understand it and not support it. And able is, you see yourself playing a role, positive, meaningful role in the, in, in the new world order in the context of that change. I think it's a great kind of lens to use which, with, in terms of organizational readiness, which should be at the front end of most change programs. So, so Steve, a question, and not too philosophical, I hope, but like what excites you today that you see in the space? You know, for, you know you've been in the space for a while, as have I, as has Jess, like, what excites you today? And, but you're still drinking that venti coffee. Uh, speaking of that venti coffee, by the way, what Starbucks did to my venti coffee this morning. Oh, nice. I was like, wow, that is from an employee experience standpoint or customer experience standpoint, it really made me smile. That's great. Little tiny thing, right? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't really have a way to make coffee. Uh, I don't know if I said it at the beginning. We are here in uh, Oregon, even though I live in Florida, because my son and his two little kids, my grandkids, live here. So we made the trek cross country. Not a big trek if you take a plane. But uh, so today's our last day here. So I go to Starbucks here in Oregon. Uh, what excites me today, uh, people analytics has been exciting me for years. Uh, and one of the most exciting things about it is that we're not looking at it from an HR domain perspective anymore. We're looking at it as business analytics. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you start to look at it that way, then uh, you know the insights 
and the value that HR and HR systems can can deliver is uh, is a multiple. You know, becomes a multiple. Um, but that said, uh, another you know, there's a lot of opportunity in people analytics to get to the next level. Because I think if I was to put a number on it, we're at level two or three out of ten levels of sophistication, applicability, and value. Probably at level three as an industry. And and there's so many reasons why I would say that we don't have enough time. But one of them is uh, I, I think there's an opportunity for tools to guide in what to investigate. What are the triggers? What are the signals that tell us we got to change something? We got you know there's an organizational agility. Uh, uh, let's say scenario here. You know, Blockbuster, people define agility as ability to pivot. Well, Blockbuster pivoted, BlackBerry pivoted. They were just too late and pivoted in the wrong way. So I think I think analytics should be picking up on those cues and signals. Organizational agility is really a major pathway to business success, as we all know. So that's one area for analytics. Another one is just, again, just, I kind of said it, but investigating. Okay, so you have some data. Do you stop there and go make a decision or take an action? If it's if it's really important, you probably want to keep looking and, you know, not not analysis uh, into paralysis. But the people analytics should tell us, you know what? You have critical mass of insight. Go do something now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I mean, I love that. What do you think about the tech? So that excites you about what people are doing, but like, is there a specific technology that you see? Like, is I mean, is chatbot exciting to you? You know, is voice exciting to you? Is is AI truly exciting yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah definitely uh, AI and machine. Well, we call it AI, like uh, yeah, you know, we call uh, everything AI. Fast speak. I mean, it's. Um, it's it's machine learning for the most part. Why does it excite me? Because it relates to some of the themes I've been talking about here. Uh, employee experience, personalization, so key, right? Just like it was for the customer experience. Know what the customer uh, wants and likes and what their predilections are and what they've chosen in the past. Same thing with employee. So yeah, employees have needs, interests, and goals. They change and they're also unique. So the more you can personalize, the better. You know, one of the things I didn't mention before, but when I ran HR systems and investment banks, I also had the the distinct pleasure. Uh, I'm not I'm not uh, being totally honest about it, of running the year end bonus process in investment bank banks. That is like the epitome of a high risk job. <laughs> when you run the bonus process in investment banks, it's high, high exposure, and you keep your head down when you're on the elevator. But but uh, but aside from that. Um, Total rewards should ideally be personalized. So not just Absolutely. learning should be personalized, rewards, uh, onboarding. The more you personalize, the more the experience is, is, eleva is elevated. So that's one of the concrete use cases for machine learning. Uh, and, and there's certainly many others. Curating resources that help me be more productive is another very concrete use case. So I think as a community, we should just uh, be disciplined about seeking out those concrete use cases and building momentum and credibility using ML in the world of HCM by, by proving out these concrete use cases. 
So that definitely excites me as well. Um, yeah, Jess, I'm sorry, do you have another question? No, I was just, I don't know, something you said, Stephen, I don't even recall what. We think so much about like innovation and technology as just making us better at doing something we're already doing. How do we do that better? How do we, how do we increase the output? How do we, you know, something we're already doing, but it just occurred to me that we, we don't think often enough about what new problems it could solve. You know, how can automation help us solve DEI? just making up words now, how, how can skills help us solve pay inequity? I'm not making that one up. That's very real. Like we don't think yeah. about how, how solving, we just think about how to do the same thing better instead of how do we solve new problems? Yeah. And that's a huge opportunity. Yeah. Once we drive totally. this innovation, that's a massive yeah. opportunity. That's how you leapfrog. You're right. You're right. And uh, just to circle back, I think uh, what has been a speed bump, uh, for the industry uh, is this is this um, overly process centric uh, view in terms of automation. You know, we went through this period of, of process automation and then we got into task automation, both at work and at home. But elevating experiences and uh, and automation that helps us get to places that we've never been to before, like Star Trek, uh, that's not process and it's not task. So it's really a whole different mindset. I will mention one, I have the distinct pleasure of, uh, of working with several emerging companies as well as established companies. One of the emerging ones, um, last two years developed something called the digital twin that I know it sounds uh, kind of freaky deaky. Mm -hmm. That's uh, That goes with woo woo freaky deaky. Woo -woo, yeah. but, uh, so, this company called MindSolve AI developed a digital twin. They're in the early stages as a company, but the concept is based on mental strength and mental, mental strength comes from mental awareness and the digital twin helps you become more self-aware over time based mm. on what's known as psycholinguistics psycho where the digital twin on your phone will say, what are you up to today? What are you thinking about? And the words you use, the topics you use over time, machine learning helps you learn more about yourself, which gives you mental strength. So uh, that's, I'm trying to answer your question about where can innovation take us? Clearly that's not process centric and, uh, and it could hold some real promise for us to think uh, uh, without boundaries of processes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, Steve. Hey, thank you so much for being on. This has been great. Um, you know, please thank connect you. with Steve on LinkedIn. Like I said, Steve puts out some great content. Um, we were Steve and I were talking yesterday. He's like, I don't, like I publish so much stuff. It's all out on LinkedIn. And you know, Steve is also <laughs> not afraid to share his comments on HR tech. So please connect with uh, with Steve on LinkedIn. Steve, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for everything. My pleasure. Yeah, thank the you. Industry. When I ran time. Into, Thanks a lot. When I ran into you in Vegas and you said, hey, I'm getting old, like you're still young in the space. So keep doing what yeah. you're doing. When you, when you gave me a hug and said, uh, I just want to be doing what you're doing at your age, I said, I think that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for All being right, guys. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy your grandkids and safe travels home. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye.